Podcast. Human beings are driven by stories, but what are stories? Stories are metaphors for life. Without story, life is um, unlivable. While stories can be the ones we tell ourselves about ourselves, they can be the ones we tell our friends at parties, but ultimately stories are far more than just sheer entertainment. Stories and storytelling are actually an integral part of who we are. They are part and parcel of what it means to be human. And as such, understanding story, deconstructing the art of storytelling and studying its underpinning principles is an endeavor most worthy of our time and attention. And there's no one better, literally nobody on the planet, no person more expert when it comes to the subject of story than Robert McKee. Stories are equipment for living, to see the full spectrum of life beyond anything we could possibly live by the thousands. Robert is a modern Aristotle of story and a master of the form who wrote the definitive book on the subject called, of course, Story. For those unfamiliar, Robert is a Fulbright scholar. He is the author of five books on storytelling, including his latest, Action, but is best known as the most sought after screenwriting teacher in the world. The wonderful thing about story is it's a museum and you can go back you know, to, to the greatest of writers. It's all there waiting for you. And every one of those great works is as valid today as it was when it was written. His students have collectively won 70 Academy Awards, 250 Emmy Awards, and 100 WGA or Writers Guild of America Awards. And also his student body includes notable writers, directors, and actors such as Peter Jackson, William Goldman, arguably the greatest screenwriter of all time. Uh, who else? David Bowie, Stephen Pressfield, friend of the podcast, Diane Keaton, Julia Roberts, Jeffrey Rush, and all of the writers at Pixar. In other words, Robert McKee is a living legend, and it was a complete and total honor to host him here in the studio on the cusp of completing his very last teaching tour. We discussed his friendship with Stephen Pressfield, who tagged along, which was really great. Uh, we talked about Robert's philosophy of teaching story, what stories are, why they're important for humanity, and so much more, including the absolutely incredible behind the scenes story of how Succession's Brian Cox ended up portraying McKee in the Oscar nominated film Adaptation, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's all coming up, but first, we're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including 
The long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, you guys ready to go? Let's do it. But let's begin by typing interior podcast studio day into our screenwriting software document, hit enter, and enjoy this unforgettable conversation with screenwriting legend, Robert McKee. Robert, it's an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to hold you captive here today. <laughs> so many questions for you. You're somebody I've revered and followed and respected from afar for a very long time. I've got my copy of story here, as what? you can tell, it's been through <laughs> some times here. It's 
well worn like and faded. Edition, that, that I think it was ninety. I don't know what year. Yeah, I think it, I think it was ninety seven when I got this book. Yeah, I got first, it when it came out. First year. Right. Yeah, and I dug it out today. I've read it many times. So you've rented space in my head for quite <laughs> some time, and uh, it's it's a pinch me moment to have you here. And we also have Steve Pressfield here as well. I love the fact that you guys are friends. That makes sense to me. It's beautiful to see you guys together. We're here on the precipice of the conclusion of your career teaching these seminars. You've been doing this for like 50 years? 40. 40 years? <laughs> you got a couple more dates and then that's a wrap? Yeah, yeah, I started doing these 40 years ago when I was in my early 40s mm -hmm. and it took over my life put my life in a whole different trajectory. And this fall will be the uh, farewell tour. This is the last time I'll do LA, New York, London. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do uh, Budapest. Mm. The government's invited me there as has the Israelis. And so I'll be in Tel Aviv as well. And so that's five, three days or four days if I do genres as, yeah. uh, the way we do them here in LA and New York and London. And so, um, going out on a high note. On a high note, yeah. I mean, how are you feeling about it? Is it bittersweet? Are you excited for it to be in the rear view mirror at the end of this chapter? And what I'm, does the next chapter look like? I really can't say until it's over and I look back and um, whether there'll be any regret. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I know it's gonna be sad. I mean, without question, yeah. half of my life has been consumed with this teaching and uh, developing the seminars and not just on story, but on love stories and crime stories mm -hmm. and, and long form television, etc. And now what I'm doing is I'm writing story two. And I just, just published, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, the action um, book. A book on the action genre. Right. But the next one, I'm gonna take story, which is still selling. It's amazing, but it hasn't lost a step after 25 years and, uh, but I've learned a lot in 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to do story two, which will be a different angle on story. And I'm gonna look at it, emphasizing creative spectrums. What does that mean? Every element that a, a writer wrestles with can be seen on a spectrum of choices. So you can be as minimalist as you want or as maximalist as you want and every variation in between. Mm -hmm. You can tell the whole story over a kitchen table between two characters, or you can do um, you know, Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. Okay? And you can be as realistic as you want or as unrealistic, non-realistic, fantasied as you wish, and you can stretch reality from the most naturalistic to the most fantastic. And so every element of story can be imagined on a spectrum of choices from the most to the least, from the biggest to the smallest, to the brightest to the darkest and on it goes. Because um, what I wanna convey in, this, in story two is choices. Mm. You know, I, I went out of my way and when I wrote story one to introduce the book and say, look, this is not a book on how to tell a story. This is a book on what a story is. And you need to understand 
all the elements of story, their relationships and how they combine to create a story, and that the possibilities are endless. Well, that's not how people often read the book. Mm -hmm. They want to be told how to. And so even though I say, I'm not gonna teach you how to, they still wanna think, okay. <laughs> right. So now story two, because I understand they're desperate. It's monumental, this task of making sense out of life and to do it in a way that has insight and power and beauty and moves us emotionally and uh, makes us laugh. It's frightening when a young writer thinks I'm going to tell story. Sure. They want you to hold their hand and walk yeah. them through the process of the doing, right? And you so, being a hard-boiled <laughs> son of a bitch <laughs> quickly disabuses those yeah, people but, of know, that but idea. Even, you know, that only, that, only, <laughs> that only seems to encourage them to, <laughs> to go, yes, he's being tough, but I, I'm determined. And, uh, uh -huh. and so tell me how. Right. So I decided in story two, I'm going to be very clear there will still be people who will read it as a manual. There's nothing I can do about that. If they want it to be a manual, then it's gonna be a manual mm -hmm. for them, okay? But I'm gonna be very, very clear in story two that it's choices. And story two, like the books I've done on character and dialogue, after um, story one, I decided I'm not going to teach for screenwriters only. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to in the first place. In fact, I had a fight <laughs> with my publisher, Judith Regan, Harper Collins. Yeah, iconic. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Queen of the bestsellers over the title. And she wanted me to call it screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't want to call it screenwriting. I will use films for the most part as examples because that's what people know. And I'll put screenwriting in the subtitle but what I want to teach is story, and I'm going to call it story. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. So story two will be for stage, page, and screen. Got it. So story two isn't an upending of the principles that are set forth in story. It is story being, you know, the what, and story two being a little bit of the how, but more an expansion of the principles elaborated in story. I hope it's less of the how. You see, when you say to someone, this is what it is. These are the elements, these are the relationships, they work together to create whatever. If I was teaching music, I'd say, this is the 12 note scale. These are chords, right? This is beats, this is rhythm, right? These are the components of music. You would never for a moment think that, oh, now I can compose music. Sure. Somebody explained right. me the elements of music. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you were teaching uh, painting, you'd say, Here's, this is the rule of thirds, this is perspective, this is the psychology of color, these are the components of anything that goes inside of a rectangle. Mm -hmm. right? And nobody would think, oh, now I can be an artist. But for some reason, <laughs> you know, when you say these are the components of story, People think, oh, well, now I can follow that in some kind of prescriptive way and now I can tell story. Mm -hmm. And what they discover is no, they can't. Mm -hmm. The mastery of these elements in conquering this form takes years, trial and error, success and failure, and mostly failure. And it's really, really difficult. And that, you know, so they don't last. Right, the dilettantes get weeded out. Right, 
Yeah. So um, story two is gonna make it even clearer than story one, just how, how much variety of choices you have in every single aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm also gonna use the clearest, simplest language I can create. Mm. I want that when readers read the book that just lights go on. Story is such an interesting terrain to explore and very tricky and elusive because story operates as part of the fabric of what it means to be human. Like everybody is familiar with story. We all are on some level, some version of a storyteller. We tell stories about ourselves and who we think we are. We tell stories to our friends. It is in so many ways, a big part of what makes us human. And yet the deconstruction of what story actually is and the elements of it are very difficult to understand. <laughs> you well, know, like, and, and there's a huge difference between yeah. you know, the story you tell your friend and really mastering the form and the art of what it means to tell a great story. So I wanna disabuse people of the idea that this is gonna be a conversation just for screenwriters or writers, like I wanna talk more broadly about how story operates in our lives and why it's important to kind of understand story and you know, how that relates to you know, the human condition. Stories are, first of all, metaphors for life. And so unlike music, which is only dealing with sound, poetry, which is dealing with feelings, painting, which is dealing with what you can see or imagine, abstract or concrete. Story is bigger than all that. And it's a metaphor for life. And so as complex and difficult as life is to understand, naturally, story, which is trying to be expressive of life, is needless to say, difficult to accomplish. And um, I've gotten to a point now where I don't think we have a story problem anymore. What do you mean by that? I mean, I see these wonderful TV series, mm-hmm. <laughs> not so many films, and I read some superb novels now. I mean, the great novels have always been around, but I see great storytelling, especially streaming, long form. Sure. And so I think, you know, I think I've had some effect. I think I've helped, I hope I have, but it seems to me that the quality of storytelling, uh, certainly on um, television, is better than ever. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable what's happening. I mean, I don't even, I'm reluctant to even call it television. I don't know what you call it now, streaming, I know it's, whatever, it's, it's, long you know, form. Because television has that, it's an old word and it has all kinds of associations. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that the quality of storytelling is as good now or better now than it's ever been. That's not the problem. The problem is content. How do you differentiate content from story? Meaning there's a glut of non-quality content out there that makes it difficult to find the gems. I mean, why are we so disappointed when we go to the movies these days? Yeah, the movies are not so great. They're not about anything. (laughs) Yeah. The real storytelling is in the long form where you can create so much dimension in these characters and allow a story to breathe and be told in the tempo that the story wants to be told with that space. And it's been remarkable. And like, you know, I was thinking about like how this has come to be, obviously 
you know, there's there's technology reasons with streaming, and you know, there's been an increasing openness on behalf of networks and studios to you know explore this. I mean, the BBC was doing this for a long time before it was happening in America. Well, I've had writers uh, that I've worked with who, um, who write for um, HBO, for example, and back when HBO was just beginning and developing, becoming what it is, you know, the people at HBO realized that the network television had captured the family. And so in order to uh, create an audience for HBO, they had to be anti-family. Mm. And so I have friends would go in there and pitch stories at HBO and the note they would get over and over again is not dark enough. Now, if you really want to get a writer excited, give them that yeah. note, not dark <laughs> enough. Okay? Do you really mean that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they did. Mm -hmm. And out came the long form really developed first in HBO's um, setting the standard. The reason that long form television is become what it has, I think it's the future. I think uh, that this century will see magnificent storytelling and that these long form works will be the, the cathedrals mm -hmm. of the 21st century. And the reason that they are so wonderful so often, uh, there's a lot of crap too, but still. What does the audience want? What does a reader want? What keeps them turning a page? What keeps them coming back episode after episode? What sustains, you know, some of the long form series are 100 hours. 50, mm -hmm. well, you know, is normal. Two things, revelation and change. And so they're fascinated as they, what would we just uh, watch some wonderful uh, series lately, Peaky Blinders. Mm, that's right? fantastic. I finally got around to it and it was just great. Yeah. You watch this to see who these people really are. And so you see their surface and their outer behaviors. And then episode after episode, you see their dimensions. And a dimension is a contradiction, a consistent contradiction in a character. So in one in one relationship, he's really kind. In another, he's incredibly cruel. And so he's both. He's capable of being both loving and gentle and vicious and kind, right? Depending, right? Does smart, clever things and makes terrible mistakes and does stupid things, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so those contradictions create dimensions. And as you're watching the series, you see that these, in long form, these are not three-dimensional characters. These are 10, 12, 15 dimensional characters, literally. And you sit there and study the character and you break down every single dimension within them mm -hmm. over 50 hours. And you see that a three-dimensional character is a supporting role. Yeah. And so they, the people wanna see that revelation, just who is this person? And so the complexity of characters, long form demands complex characters because you need to reveal who they really are over years to keep the interest and change. Is this character going to arc from where they started to where they end? And so we want them, we wanna see how and why people change. Mm -hmm. Long form, in order to sustain years of series, has to have extremely complex characters, multi-dimensional of the extreme kind and capable of change. 
That is so satisfying. Sure, it operates like a Russian novel, you know, in the classic sense. Well, I, I've looked at certain novels, Russian and otherwise, and I've said, if this was a series, War and Peace, if it were a series, would be season one, and that's all. War and Peace is just uh, six or eight principal characters, family relationships and love relationships played out against the background of um, Europe and turmoil. It's War and Peace, for yeah. God's sake, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's only got enough material for one 12-episode season. And so even the most huge thousand-page novels would be consumed inside of a long-form series. Right. It, it appears to me that things started to change. The first real network show that kind of broke the mold of what episodic television could be, to my mind, was lost because it was telling a longer story. Mm -hmm. It took big swings. It didn't always follow through or connect properly on yeah. some of those swings, but it was taking risks and it was telling a longer story. And because it was successful, it was signaling to the networks and the studios, oh, that this could work. And then that you know is, is sort of matured in the cable universe with The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and The Wire, David Chase and Vince Gilligan, who are telling these long stories, who, who understood on some level like that there was this broader arc and that these characters were gonna land in a very different place from where they began. But with that also came the advent of the anti-hero as yes. the protagonist, right? Which is different from Lost and has become a staple of, you know, serious, dramatic, long form storytelling. So, you yeah. know, why do you think, like, why have we embraced the anti-hero? Why has, you know, the bad guy, I don't mean that in a perfunctory way. I realize there's multi-dimensions to all of these characters, but in a sense, you know, it is a different type of character that all of us as audience members have really gravitated towards and connected with, which feels different than prior decades. Well, it, the length helps and the size of the cast also helps because where an audience places their empathy is in relationship to everything that's around it. And so when an audience or a reader enters a novel or film or TV series, whatever, instinctively, they go in search of the center of good. They want some positive glow, some positive quality in a major character that causes them to think the thought, ah, like me, she's like me, he's like me, okay? That positive glow at the center is in relationship to everything that's around it. So like in The Sopranos, if you surround Tony with mobsters, the FBI who's lying and cheating and whatnot, if you surround him with a darker, darker world, and you see that he's troubled, that he has panic attacks, and he's terrified of something he doesn't understand, the audience goes, ah, panic attack, just like me. These things, I have these moments, I have that. He's, he's vulnerable. He's a gangster, but he's vulnerable, just like me. And so he becomes the center of good, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Because it's, because your empathy has to go somewhere. Right, 
And generally these antiheroes are living by a certain code. And that might not be the code that we would choose for our own lives, but they have rules. Code's a code. Yeah. And you yep. know, often it's, you know, family first or whatever it is. Yep. And it's very important that they not violate that code. And within the strictures of that code, there is a certain goodness that you can identify or a humanity. Yeah. And somebody who has um, some code, as you say. There's something that, that they would uh, risk their life for. There's some standard that they would hold. Mm -hmm. Even if it's, you know, well, we, long before uh, Tony Soprano, there was the Godfather. And we're used to empathizing with gangsters in that sense. I mean, Hollywood's done that for, for decades. Sure. And so you paint a darker world, you turn on a light in the middle of it, and there's some positive quality like I have a private coat. And we go, yeah, just like me, I too have a code. And so they they empathize with some some, <laughs> uh, some really difficult, complex, uh, troubling uh, characters. I think that's that's a huge part of it. Is that the writing is so good, they know how to sculpt the positive and negative charges in a cast and create this glow at the middle. This that's one thing. But I also think since the 70s, 80s, society in general is slowly waking up to what a corrupt world we live in. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I remember the first big surprise for me for that was uh, Chinatown. Mm -hmm. So I think that the writers who are creating these great series like The Wire and Six Feet Under, you know, it was a great series right. of Boardwalk Empire, right? We're actually 10 years behind society. People always ask, you know, do, do writers lead society? Do they create things that people then emulate, whatever? Or do um, does society, um, does it happen first in society and the writers are attuned that's to that? Bonding. And that's my point of view. It happens first in society because the forces of society are so titanic that culture and the economics and the politics of things are um, too huge to be led anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so writers, I think, are people who are very sensitive to what's happening in the world. And so when they, when they start showing the dark side, people responded positively to it because they already knew it was there. And they go, yes, that's life. That's who we are now. That's our, you know, whatever. And that, even to this day, however, that audience that is willing to admit what a corrupt world it really is, is limited. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So here we are now in an era in which, you know, basically the anti-hero reigns supreme and culturally, and I was talking to Steve the other day, uh, chatting with him about like what we might talk about. And, and one of the things that he brought up that I was 
that I think is super interesting, and it and it's you know a big part in in the new book action, is you know is about the ascension of of the quote unquote for better or worse like the bad guy, and we're in this kind of bad guy era in many mm-hmm. ways. You know, Trump is sort of a classic villain, and the narratives that we see being spun in popular culture and in politics are you know, about what Trump is doing and we have Putin and all of these kind of, you know, they're, they're like Titanic bad guys, right? And, well, and in 30, some ways, like how is that reflected in, in the, 30, the writing that we're seeing? percent of the American public thinks that, that, that <coughs> Trump descended from heaven and he's here to <laughs> so lead us. So what is going on? <laughs> the other you 70% tell me. are not so, yeah. but there's 30% of Americans who really believe that he is the hero, not an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And, and yeah. so, but yeah, the majority of people um, <clears throat> to some degree see it for what it is. Um, when Trump was elected, I know Michael Moore was saying before the election, he's gonna get elected. He was calling it very early. Right. And and he's, we're both from Michigan and so is mm-hmm. Michael Moore, right? Yep. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I've always known this since I was a kid, <clears throat> growing up in the in the suburbs of Detroit. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure it was the same everywhere in America, but as as kids, we thought that abusive alcoholic fathers was normal. But nobody ever said that. Everybody worshipped the family, right? But in the subtext, we all knew that that the worst time of your life is your childhood. But we denied it and denied it and denied it. That society, that America's a wonderful country that the, you know, we just couldn't face it. But now it's out there to be seen and it's so clear. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, storytelling has responded to society's sense that we are not who we pretend to be and I don't know why we ever thought we were. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, living here in um, LA back back when, I used to play golf with some engineers who were working to take the this military system of communication into the world that became the internet. Right. Right. Yeah. And they were all excited about what they're doing, and they they would talk about it constantly you know, over lunch and whatnot. Right. And it was fascinating. At one point they asked me, you know, what do you think? What do you think of this? I said, it's fascinating. And if what you guys are proposing actually comes true, it will be a perfect mirror of human nature. And they all smiled because these engineers had no idea what human nature is. And the internet and social media are a perfect mirror. The pornography, the cruelty, the meanness of all kinds, crime of all kinds, and they're able to do it anonymously. And so the internet has exposed human nature for what it really is, and they can get away with it for the most part because it's it's anonymous. Mm -hmm. And you see how what, you know, what... (laughs) Here we are. Sorry, creatures. <laughs> we really are. Here we are. And you know, and my feeling is that that's got to be a good thing, because the truth is coming out, little by little, 
but the truth is coming out and people are gonna have to live in a reality that they would that they denied throughout history for the most part. Right, so you're saying basically that gives us a chance, the opportunity to actually reckon with it and perhaps uh, you know transcend it. Hopefully, well, it's, a, it's, to, it's a macro version of yeah, they, being in denial of the alcoholic father. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You just have to stop pretending. Right. This and, is who we are. And living in reality is in a Freud. Freud once said, he he said, it's impossible to live in reality. He said, just try it. Try for one minute to live in absolute, brutal, rock bottom reality for one full minute. And he said, within 20 seconds, you'll start to fantasize. He said, it's just too awful. The mind can't bear it, <laughs> right? And this is why we write stories. Well, what is reality? How do you define reality? We're all uh, you know, operating through the lens of our perception yes. and our perception, you know, creates the the epistemics, the heuristics, how we make sense of the world, right? And story really is the core functioning operating system for all of that. Like story is uniquely human. It's what makes us who we are and uh, you know, gives us this framework, right? So Let's go back to just defining what story is, and and you know it's just it's curious to me that you know story and humanity cannot be you know they're inextricably linked with each other. We're the we're the one creature on Earth that is really operating on story all the time, and yes. stories are functioning in very visible ways, but also in so many invisible ways, and and all of that really dictates. The decisions that we make and, and you know how we kind of function in the world. It, when you take an action in life at any moment, you always take an action designed to create a positive reaction that will help you get toward what you want. Right? I mean, this is as old as Socrates. Mm -hmm. That all human beings act toward the good, or their perception of the good. The worst of people act toward what they perceive to be the good or the positive. When somebody gets on a school bus with a jacket of dynamite and blows up all the, himself and all the kids on that bus, that person believes he's doing God's work, okay? So all human beings act toward the positive. So you always take an action to create a reaction which will somehow help you toward what you want even if what you want is to make somebody else feel bad, mm -hmm. okay? So you insult people because it's satisfying to watch them suffer for a moment, right? <laughs> or you compliment them because you want them to whatever, right? How do you know what to do in order to cause a reaction that will get you a step toward what you want? If you only had your living experience, you wouldn't know what to do. You'd be paralyzed, you wouldn't know what to do. And so how do you know what actions to take in life to get what you want? Because you have been told stories since you were a child, you have read mm -hmm. stories as a child, you have seen them countless on a, by the tens of thousands of stories from everything from, from TV commercials to you know, crime and punishment. That whole stockpile of story 
is buried in your memory and gives you uh, a sense of if I do this in these mm -hmm. circumstances, that person will take an action that'll right. help me, whatever. Because life without story, life is um, un, uh, terrifying, unlivable. You there's would, also something- You wouldn't know what to do. Right, it's, it's giving you this framework. But I think there's also something unique about story in that it tends to, like a story well told will live rent free in your conscious or unconscious mind mm. in perpetuity, right? Like That's what right. is it about a great story well told that can, that can just um, impact us so profoundly as opposed to the imparting of the information. Like you can say to somebody, and this is kind of like, you know, what I do here on the podcast. Like yeah. some people, will, they're, they're an expert in something and they'll come in and they'll say, here are the five things you should be doing every day or something like that. And you could take that information and some people might even act on that, but that's very different from somebody who comes in and tells an incredible story in which those tenets or principles are, are conveyed yep. that will live with that person and have a much more profound effect and also uh, more likely to actually get them to change their behavior than a listicle or some bullet points or a PowerPoint or what have you. So, you know, from that, you know, I'm always trying to like, you know, uh, default to storytelling over just the information. And I can't help but like wonder like, like how did we evolve to well, learn it, in that way it, such it, that- Yeah, and uh, neuroscientists have um, been uh, looking at this um, uh, for at least 40 or 50 years now. And what they've come to understand is that the mind is a story making machine. The mind takes its experience at every moment and is narratizing everything that happens to it. And so its understanding of reality is based upon the stories that it has told itself. Mm -hmm. It's why we human beings are able you know, to rule the world as we, as we do is because we can take raw experience and first of all, be, look into the subtext and ask the question, why? Why did that just happen? And your mind penetrates that and says, it recognizes there must have been a force in there. There must have been a need she wanted this, he wanted that, this business wants that, the government wants that. There's these desires going inside and they're, they're motivating these behaviors and these forces are hidden underneath and then they, they manifest themselves in a behavior. But if you track back to it, you discover the reasons why. Mm -hmm. No other, no animal ever asks why. Only human beings ask why. Right. right? And that human beings are like that little annoying five-year-old who says, why daddy, why, 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 why? The major question out of the mouth of kids is why? They wanna understand causality. They wanna understand how one thing causes another, how that effect then becomes a cause, it, causes, it triggers another effect, and they wanna understand the interconnectedness of life. They wanna understand why. Stories express why. At the end of a story, you understand, if it's well told, mm -hmm. why these characters, these metaphors for human beings did what they did. What they wanted, why they wanted it, how they went about trying to get it. And so the 
story educates you on the hows and whys of things. Perhaps most profound of the stories that impact our lives, for better or worse, are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We're all walking around with some version of a locked in narrative, right? That either liberates <laughs> us or imprisons us, probably uh, imprisons us, you know, and probably is AKA, working in disservice. Yeah, also, but as, how do you think also about known that? as self deception? Okay. <laughs> yeah, none of these stories are true, whether they're good or bad, they're all they're not, illusions. Well, but true in the sense they're not, they're not factual. Yeah. They may have a real truth in them, however, about why we did what we did. But yes trying to make sense out of our own life. And we go back with regret often. Why did I do that? Why didn't that work? Why did I fail at that? Or was I just lucky? I mean, we're trying to make sense out of our own life. And so we tell ourselves stories out of our memories and the stories that we tell ourselves are very selective. Yeah. And deceptive. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the story that you tell yourself about yourself? You know, some years ago, um, I was lecturing in um, Spain and um, a journalist there asked me a question nobody had ever asked me, which was, because <laughs> I'd probably, by, by this time, I'd been lecturing for at least, you know, 25 years. And he asked me why. He said, why do you do this? Why do you travel? Or, you know, he said, you, you, you must have made enough money by now. Why, <laughs> why do you keep traveling the world trying to help people compose insightful, honest stories uh, for page, stage, and screen. Why, why do you do this? And I had to think, because I had never, until he asked me that question, I had never really thought to ask myself that. And uh, I said, well, very little in life, very little is meaningful. It's random, far more random than we want to believe. But meaning and, is a function of, of choice. You can well, attribute it, meaning it, it, to meaning anything is something that, that we to give to something else. Yeah. It's, it's, as what I was saying was, there is no intrinsic meaning to life. It is a biological accident that occurred on this planet, maybe others, but there is no intrinsic meaning. That's but that doesn't mean... Shit. It's not the same thing as saying life is meaningless. There is no intrinsic meaning, but you, as the existentialists used to teach, you have to find your project. You have to find out what gets you up in the morning, what's your purpose in life. You have to give your life meaning and you have to do it yourself. If you wait for other people to do it, you will live an invalid life. It won't be your life. You'll be leading other people's lives. And so I, I thought, you know, I just said, there's no intrinsic meaning. And so what is my meaning? Why do I do this? And the answer that I gave him was this. There is no intrinsic meaning in reality, in life. There is, however, suffering. That's real. Human beings suffer. All living things suffer. That's what it is to be alive, is to suffer. Anything that a person can do to alleviate the suffering in others is a good thing, a positive thing, a meaningful thing. Stories do exactly that. They make life livable. 
They help alleviate the suffering because great, great suffering comes from confusion, from just not understanding things. I don't know why. I don't know why. Why is this happening to me? Who am I? Etc. Those are terrifying things, and and you suffer in that confusion. Right. So it's providing this map of meaning that is giving you an explanation or a better understanding for your own personal struggle, but also making it a shared experience. Like if you're relating to somebody else who's gone through something analogous, you don't feel quite alone or that your experience is unique from your fellow man. Yeah, it's not a question of, um, stories don't tell us what we should do. There's a difference between ought and is. We ought to do things. When we have ideals, Mm -hmm. we understand you know, we have certain standards that we want to achieve. We have ideals, and we ought to live up to our moral ideals, our artistic ideals, right? We ought to. But then there's is. Mm-hmm. There's what is. And stories, great stories, make what is clear. They don't tell you what you ought to do. You know, Lord of the Flies. It's a magnificent novel about human nature, but it doesn't tell you what you ought to do. It just says, this is human nature. This is what is. Right, right, right. And the more you understand what is, the less suffering you go through because you're living in, in reality. You're living in the is rather than the ought. You can still have your ideals and aspirations as long as they're not, you know, full of hope. Right. Well, extrapolating on that idea of of you know suffering as as being fundamental and you know a, a primary aspect of of the human condition, I've heard you speak many times about uh, you know the idea of life being a struggle. Right? You bristle at this notion that describe life as a journey. You I know, hate like, that you word. Hate that. <laughs> and I want to kind of understand this a little bit better, and perhaps you know you right. can indulge me in pushing back a little bit. Um, life why, is, why life is, it that, is not why, a journey. <laughs> so let's let's deconstruct that a little bit. So, a, that's a, uh, a journey is a California word, and there <laughs> you know there are many share. You know you you just can't tell anybody anything in California. You must share it with them. Well, here we are in California <laughs> sharing. Yes, and we're gonna we're gonna share some ideas on this. I mean, the way I look at it is. You know, journey, the word journey itself is a very broad word. It's it's also somewhat neutral, whereas- Yeah, it's not. Struggle. No, no, right, no, no. Well, yeah, well, it, it should be, it should yeah. be. You're right, it should be neutral. Journey is, it can be negative or positive, right? It doesn't exist on an extreme of the polarities. If you want to define it that way, but that's All not right. how people use it. They, they use it as something aspirational. As a euphemism. Euphemisms are words to protect us from reality. We don't call it shit. We call it number two, <laughs> okay? I got we you, use you euf- follow. We use euphemisms because we can't face reality. It's too ugly, it's too awful, it's what it is. And uh, it's painful and, uh, and so we, uh, we, wanna, we wanna um, live in a, you know, like I said, denial as, as psychologists have pointed out since forever, denial makes the world go round. And journey is a word that makes it possible to deny the truth. If you say life is a journey, a journey is you get on a bus in Cleveland 
and it takes you to Chicago and you sit there watching the countryside go by. That's a journey. Life is not like that. It's a struggle and an uphill. It's Sisyphus in that rock. Yeah, but it's also all the beautiful colors of the rainbow. Like, yeah, here's my point. Yeah, and like, hear me out. Let me just finish this thought. So I do think journey is a broader term that, you know, struggle is very connotative and, 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 and somewhat reductive in a negative sense. Like struggle, of course, is part of the journey. It's an essential part of it. But doesn't the word journey also make room for the spectrum of, of experiences from joy to love and celebration and heartbreak and setbacks and conflict? It's all of it, right? It like could this be, is but that's the journey not is <laughs> how people use the word. Okay. I'm using They it that use way. it to avoid I, the, I get your the realization I that it's a bitch. Uh-huh. It's not easy. It's hard. People are terrible. <laughs> Much of the time, <laughs> you have to deal yeah. with people. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the best things that come out of the pandemic is people are now working at home and they're so pleased to be working at home. Why? Because they don't have to be around other people. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's as simple as that, right? And so, yeah, I know, I know. But uh, look, I teach writers. It's very important, from my point of view that writers use a truthful, precise language, that they do not indulge in euphemisms. Because if they use euphemisms in their own mind, how can they possibly interpret reality in an honest, uh, mm. truthful way? And celebrate it when it needs celebration, and lament it when it doesn't, right? But if, if writers use words to separate themselves from reality, how in the world could they ever write anything that would bring the audience or the reader into contact with reality? And so that's why I get, yeah. you know, I, I get, you know, peevish. I know it's boring. But, no, it's but, not boring. I love it. I mean, I think a, there's a, it's, it's not idle. I mean, there's a re I don't like the word hope much. Mm -hmm. Hope is the denial of reality. If you really think about the possibility of me achieving what I want to achieve, what, what are the odds? I mean, there's a possible, you could get what you want, but the chances are you won't. Or but it's also be, the engine of tackling and, and overcoming obstacles, right? You can't face dire or tragic circumstances without some you can't get into action without some sliver of hope that you'll be able to navigate it and get to the no, other no, side. There's a difference between expectation and hope. I mean, there are anticipation and hope because if people use the word hope in the same way that they use the word um, uh, uh, anticipation or expectation, I'd be fine. Sure. Right? So but when, but, people, but, when people are, are, are going through hell and then somebody says, well, there's always hope. Right, no, I, I, I understand that, you know, that's, that's greeting card bullshit. Yeah, right. I understand what you're saying. Right. I mean, fundamentally what you're getting at is honesty, right? Like how can we strip away artifice and really, you know, pull the covers on reality and, you know, use writing and story as a means of elucidating the human condition in its truth, right? And that's the core of great writing, whatever story it is you're trying to tell. See, if a writer is going to fault 
one way or another. I would rather that they fault toward cynicism, certainly skepticism, than fault toward optimism, hope, and everything's going to turn out all right, happy endings. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's not that you can't have a positive ending if the characters earn it. They have to earn it. Yeah, that's the difference. <clears throat> right? But I, happy endings. <laughs> uh, 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 is is a, is a commercial imperative. Yeah. Well, it just it, it, you know any audience member knows whether they're conscious of it or not. The difference between a happy ending earned and one that's saccharine and you know kind yeah. of slapped on top yeah. of it, and you leave like. Maybe you, did you even feel did good. You li- or, did you um, watch the uh, series Leftovers? Oh, I, I, I made a list because I wanted to talk about yeah. my favorite long form yeah. uh, shows and that's up at the top. Like I, I just think- And that ending- It's one of the greatest. It's one of the most yeah. powerful, beautiful endings of anything I've ever mm-hmm. experienced in my life. And those characters have earned that love in that moment. And so it's a positive ending, but it isn't, a happy ending in the Hollywood mm-hmm. sense of the word. It is a positive ending. They've reached something worthy in their lives, something of real quality in their lives, but they've been through hell to get there. And it's it's an honest ending, positive and honest. Yeah. And so I'm not against happy endings. I'm just against the sentimentality. Sure. Who who out there is is really killing it? Like who in your mind is really doing the great work right now? What have you enjoyed or consumed recently that you think really rises above? I mentioned Peaky Blinders. I just finished that. Yeah. And I thought that was uh, wonderful. That, but that's from like five years ago, right? Six. Well, seven. I think the recent, the most recent season was recently this yeah, that, past that's, year. That's true. That's yeah. true. I, you know, when, when people ask that question, I, I, I tell you, it's a series that has stuck with me for the last year or two or whatever. And it's called Made. I don't think I've seen that. M-A-I-D, Made. And I just loved it. And um, it did okay, it got some nominations and so forth. It's about a single mom and her, uh, her I don't know if they were ever actually married. I don't think they were, but they were you know, living together is an alcoholic and abusive. And she takes her kid and she's never had a job. She has almost no education and she's thrown into the world. And she gets a job cleaning houses and over the course of the series grows as a human being, just figures out how things work, how she works, mm-hmm. what's her what her real values are. She's got a crazy mother and all the rest of it. Until and finally <clears throat> she gets herself to college, positive, happy ending, but she really earned it. Mm-hmm. And why does that series you know, pop to mind when you ask that question? I can only say that it's, I think it's wonderfully done, as usual, beautifully acted, but that's everything now. I mean, the, the actors as a community of artists are 10 years ahead of the writers. Every time you turn on a TV series, you see these wonderful performances mm-hmm. and you say, where'd they, where, mm-hmm. right? where'd they come from? But I think the reason it, it got me is that that's a world I don't know. Single mom, cleaning houses. The writing was so terrific, honest writing. There's some scenes in there that deal with hoarders. 
I've known one hoarder in my life, uh-huh. a, a mother-in-law I had some time ago, and um, they decide then <clears throat> some hoarder decides to, to clean up their house, but they can't do it themselves. I mean, they're not yeah. emotionally able, right? So they get a cleaning company, or a house is um, <clears throat> going to be put up for sale, and so the realtor brings in a cleaning company to make that house sparkle for the buyers and the cleaners see what the previous owners, how they lived Mm -hmm. and how they left it. I mean, there was insights there into uh, lower middle class, middle class, lower class from an angle through the eyes of people who have to clean up the mess that people leave. And at the same time, she's growing as a character and evolving based on a true story, based on a factual story. Mm. I'd never seen anything. I've never experienced anything like that. Uh, and so I thought it was terrific. And, um, you know, n- nobody knows it. Yeah, <laughs> so. I know. I thought I'd seen all the great long forms out there. Well, so it's, a, it's, it's not that long. I mean, it's, it's one season. You know, it's like yeah. eight episodes. All right. Um, I, I always hesitate over that that question because you get judged by your answer. Mm-hmm. So if I if I like um, you know the Norseman, yeah, okay, <laughs> All that mayhem, right? Uh, uh, people say, yeah, you know, that's he's yeah. right. You're gonna get you're yeah, gonna get right. pigeonholed. I, right. I get it. I mean, so I, think I like the maid too, you know. There's, but I also like the Norseman. So uh, so uh, uh, it's the choices are wonderful today. I mean, uh, the good fight is coming back. And in my judgment, the greatest TV series uh, of all is Better Call Saul, Mm. Breaking Bad. All time. More than Sopranos, more than Breaking Bad, Mad Men, all all of that. Wow. Okay, no. Now, I say Better Call Saul is the greatest TV series ever written, okay? (laughs) And then somebody turns (laughs) on episode one, uh, my recommendation, and they find this crazy Jimmy McGill and his... uh, mean-spirited brother and all the rest of it, and it just bores them to death, mm. right? And then you're going to say, well, who, who, who is this expert, McKee? What the hell does he know? I'm, you know? So I just say, look, explore, you know, get Netflix and HBO and, and Prime and, you know, the usual, Hulu and all the usual suspects and go looking. Mm-hmm. And something captures you if it really works for you, you're going to have um, a quality of experience, a depth and breadth of experience in long form television that no human beings ever had prior to the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. this This is what we're creating now is breathtaking and it surpasses in, in its density and its, and its complexity, powers, much of everything that we've ever, I mean, there's still Shakespeare and there's- Sure, <laughs> there's, sure. I mean, it's yeah, it's but, where all the talent and the great work is happening yes. right now, for but sure. But now we are very fortunate to live in a world where the, the quality of, um, and the insights into character, insights into society, what's right and wrong with our society are really astute. And um, I can't keep up with it. 
Yeah, there's too much. It's too much. All the foreign language stuff too. There's amazing foreign yes, language. Yes, if you start looking, form. if you if you you know if you're willing to read subtitles and you see yeah. all the stuff that's coming out of Denmark and Sweden yeah. and uh, Oregon, Le Bureau from yeah. France was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, let's shift gears here a little bit. Yeah. I mean, when you, you know, with all of the amazing writers that you've mentored and worked with over the years, I mean, to your mind, what distinguishes good from the greats? Like when you think of William Goldman, who was a student of yours and is a friend of yours, yeah. like what makes him that much better than someone, you know, just 10% less successful? Like what is the edge? Talent. That makes the great people great. It's talent. And what is that? Ta how does that and, and talent has, translate onto the page? Like, what to are do they doing? With me. I cannot. I, you know, I teach what I teach. People take it and use it as they will. And the fact that certain students of mine are really the highest water is a question of talent. Mm -hmm. You know, you can define talent. It's really simple. Talent, creative talent, is the discovery of the third thing. A talented person over on the right side of their brain, they have a faculty, a creative IQ, your conventional IQ is over on your left side. This is you know, simplistic, but, yeah. but the creative IQ is certain people have the power to discover the hidden connection between two things that already exist but a third thing that connects them in a way no one else has ever thought before. So what would be it, an example? Analogical that? logic. Uh, example I often give in class is that little poem that you read in junior high school, I think it is, it's called The Fog, Carl Sandburg's The Fog. And there's a phrase in there, it says the fog, I think it's moved, I forget. But the fog moved in, on little cat's feet. Fog is weather. Cat's feet mm -hmm. is, a, is an animal. There is no necessary relationship between them. But Sandberg found a relationship between fog and cat's feet. And when he puts it together in that simile, like cat's feet, a third thing is born into the world which is the relationship between fog and cat's feet. That's creativity, it's analogical logic. It's the discovery of the hidden connection. It's a delusional to think that you create from nothing. You cannot make something out of nothing. What artists do is they take what is and they find connections between mm -hmm. all of what is and they fuse them into third things that are wonderful or beautiful or enriched somehow when they do it really well. Right, and the, with the, the, the kind of hidden piece there also is that it has to be true, right? Like that idea of the fog and the cat's feet when you yeah, contemplate it was, that. it wasn't apt. It not only elevates like the, the visceral experience of that, you know it innately like, oh yeah, that is what it is. Absolutely, and that's, you know, when someone's writing, and they're reaching for a, a, a metaphor or a metaphor comes to mind and they try it out and they go, no, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not right. 
So they look for another one, another one, you know, different, right? And and out of ten, they might find one that is really fresh, and true, and that's the one they use. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as if these these uh, tropes of language just fall out of the brain. Most of what falls out of the brain is worthless. <laughs> so mm. you, know, you have to have taste and judgment as to know what's. So how do you think about how do you think about the idea of the muse, though, like the unseen, you know, inspiration well, and the the, the, the the mystical art of Steve, of you know drawing Steve, down Steve upon Pressfield, imagination. Steve Pressfield. And I, were, were I might that. find the tension in your uh, in uh, your, in no, your he, you perspectives know, he, here. He wrote that wonderful book, The War of Art, and I wrote the <laughs> preface to it, uh-huh. and. Um, his publisher asked me to write the preface to it. And um, and I said, I think it's a wonderful book. It's a beautiful book, but I, I can't buy the muse. And his publisher said, good, because neither do I. <laughs> I said, but there is talent and it is subconscious. And so it seems as if it's coming from outside of you, descending from above whatever metaphor you want to use, right? But of course it's coming from you. It's you, you're doing this, nobody else. And if it's a mystery to you, it's because it's subconscious and- uh, But you know as well as anyone that that many a great artist will say, I didn't create this thing, it kind of came through me. Like there's this idea of being, you know, present- Well, first of all, you have in, to understand- receiving artists, kind of artists, You have to understand. <laughs> the marketing of artists, okay. right? Uh-huh. They want to appear mysterious. We all know, anybody who's worked knows that if you keep 10% of what you write, it's, it's remarkable. More likely something mm-hmm. like five or two or whatever. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of what comes through you that you actually keep. And so they know that, you know, when, when, what is it to write? What is it actually like? It's you torturous down, and terrible. You sit down, a piece of paper, okay, or a screen on your computer, and um, he says, she says, and you knock out a scene. Takes maybe 10 minutes. Then what do you do? You read what you've written. And as you read it, you critique it. Oh, shit, that's terrible. Oh, you, no, you, you wouldn't say that. Whatever. And then you go back and you rewrite it. And then what do you do? You read it again. What works, what doesn't, and most of it still doesn't work. Maybe one or two things you keep. And then you go back and you rewrite. And if you, if you had a, a stopwatch at your keypad, the way uh, lawyers do, and kept track of how much time do I spend actually writing a scene and how much time do I spend critiquing it and playing with it and then rewriting it, the time you spend critiquing and analyzing is 10 times the time you spent mm-hmm. writing it. Probably more than that. And probably much more than that. I mean, you know, we've all you know, written one paragraph a day, right? And and to come to sit down the next morning and go a piece of shit and out the whole paragraph that you spent a whole day on, it's gone. But if if you tell people that, if the writer said, you have no idea how hard it is, man. I spend 
maybe you know 20 minutes a day creating something that that I didn't spend the next 10 hours savaging and I often just throw mm-hmm. the whole thing out and start all over again it's really hard work it's gutty you know it, it drives you crazy your, your guts are in a knot all day long and that's why we drink right right if so- you actually said that to people okay <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants to hear that what they want to believe is that they were walking down the street and it just descended out mm-hmm. of the ether and into me and through me. And it, you know. It, I get that. I mean, there's a workmanlike woodshedding of, you know, that, that dispels the romance and the, you know, mysticism of the whole thing. And the vast majority of writing is painful and hard and, you know. And it's, boring. And bo- yeah, and boring, Gosh, right? And, 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 lo- and lonely and all of that. And all the rest But there it. are those moments of inspiration or temporary flow states where there's a sense of, uh, of ease about it. Of course, it, right? of course. And you yeah. celebrate those and you go, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got a decent pass at whatever page that you're working on, and you read it and you go, that's not bad. Mm. You know, that's a good day. Yeah. I lecture, I teach and I write for writers. And it, if anybody has to be honest about it, I do. Yeah. I can't invite people into this world. Somebody decides I'm gonna be, a, you know, get out of college, I'm gonna be a writer. They have to be willing to fail for the next 10 years. That's 10 major works, 10 novels, 10 films, 10 plays, 10 of whatever, at least one a year, at least one a year for the next 10 years and nobody wants them. That's real. Mm -hmm. And I cannot pretend to uh, my students that you're gonna have success by just following this, do that, one thing or another, and um, and it'll you know it'll flow, it'll just come down to right. you and you whatever. Right. No, I get it, and I think you know that's a big piece in the success of of the seminars is the fact that you tell it like it is, like this is the truth of the matter. This is a very difficult road. I'm actually restrained. Are you? Well, let's. <laughs> that's a good segue into. No, I'm actually restrained. <laughs> I, if I wanted to, listen, you. I'm finding you to be very gentlemanly here and and reserved and you know that conjures the the scene and adaptation which you know upon seeing that made me intimidated to meet you here today because uh, that you know iconic scene sort of precedes you. Can we talk about sure, adaptation? Sure, sure, of course. I mean, first of all, one of my all-time favorite movies and 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 that sequence and your persona being rendered by Brian Cox so brilliantly in that movie just you know lives with me it's incredible right and i know there's a great backstory here can you tell that story uh why brian cox is that the well just you know how whole, did this whole thing oh, the whole come phenomenon? together yeah oh god <laughs> i know you've told it yeah, a million times yeah yeah i um um phone rang one day and it was a producer calling from new york uh, ed saxon and um he said we uh, we have a problem and i thought they wanted me to script doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, we've got this writer, Charlie Kaufman, and he's he's written a screenplay and made you a character in it. He has freely stolen from your lectures and your book without obviously permission. And we don't know what to do. 
Well, he knew what to do. He knew I, he had to call you and get you on board. I said, I said, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, send me the script. Mm-hmm. So I read it, and um, was that uh, the first? Had you did you know very, Charlie Kaufman before no, that? No, 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 uh-huh. no, no, no. I had so no you idea. didn't know no, what didn't. his no, particular flavor nothing, of no. right? And um, and I could see that what he wanted me to be is the villain. He wanted me to represent Hollywood, right? And he perceives Hollywood as the villain, and Hollywood is uh, formulaic. And uh, and he perceived me as formulaic. An insult to his creative genius. Exactly. But I also realized he needs a villain because otherwise the screenplay sucks. Right. Otherwise it's just a, you know, it's just a uh, <coughs> masturbation about how awful it is to be a writer, the stuff we were just talking about. <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> and very importantly, the third act sucked, it was awful. So I called Ed Saxon back and um, I said, I see what he's up to. And I can, you know, I see your concern because um, if you go ahead with this project, I will sue you for everything you've got. Mm. And he said, well, what do we, you know? I said, well, here's what we're gonna do. One, you're gonna write a redeeming scene for my character. Two, I have to have say in the casting. And three, there has to be a whole new third act because the third act sucks and I can't be a character in a bad movie. How did it originally end? What was the difference? Oh, uh, Susan Orleans um, shoots a cop. So it didn't have any of the meta nature of how, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. And you know, Charlie Kaufman is is a fascinating guy in that, and there's many people like him. He's trying for the impossible. He wants to have a commercially successful art movie. He wants art and money. I respect that though. And I would I argue understand. that he succeeded. Said, you know, you know, he that, succeeded in it. that. I get it. I mean, know? some of the, not all of them, you know, I no, mean, Schenectady, like you know, there's some, that's, you know. Right. But he pretends he only wants to be an artist. Uh-huh. In fact, he knows how Hollywood works. He knows if he doesn't make money, he won't, he won't be working. And so it's a bit hypocritical. It's a bit, you know, yeah. <clears throat> pretentious, but that's okay. I said, okay. I said, but, you know, I said, so we're going to have to have meetings. Uh huh. So art imitates life, imitates art. Yeah. Like what you're doing in the movie, you're now doing for the movie. Yeah. Well, you know, before I decided to go for it, go with it, on my conditions, I, I talked to two people. I called William Goldman. Mm hmm. And I said, Bill, they, they, they want to make me a character in a movie and blah, blah, blah. And for said, pe- let me just interject for a moment, yeah. apologies, but for people that don't know, arguably the greatest screenwriter of all time wrote Butch Cassidy, All the President's Men, Marathon Man. Yeah. Go ahead, the greatest, Certainly the greatest writer of dialogue sure. in the history of the movies. And he said, don't do it. I said, well, they're gonna give me permission on the casting. He said, oh, really? 
Eh? Huh? Yeah? Okay, who do you want? I said, uh, uh, Gene Hackman. Mm. He said, okay, it'll be Gene Hackman with a big pink bow around his neck. He said, Bob, they're out to get you. Yeah, no matter how you slice it, you're gonna end they're up They're gonna get bad. you. If mm -hmm. you let them, they're gonna get you. Don't do it. So then I called my son. I said, Paul, <laughs> and he said, do it. I said, but William Goldman says, that, you know, he's a dad. You're gonna be a character in a Hollywood film. You, in fact, I'd already been a character in one film uh -huh. uh, called 20 Dates. He's gonna be another character now, but in, in, a, in a major Hollywood film. He said, no matter what, you know, you know, do it. You'll love it, do it. And uh, so then I called uh, Saxon back and I said, um, you know, I have to have casting, whatever. And um, we have to have uh, writers meetings with me and them. And um, we gotta find a third act that, that and the third act that they came up with, I said, okay. But I knew only half the audience would go with it. When it pivots towards his brother's version of yeah. what a good story is, lifted from what he learned in your seminar, basically. Yeah, right. And then I and thought it was fantastic. Well, yeah, but <laughs> I think it's one of the great third I, acts. Well, it's, well, but I mean, it's certainly well, unique and unlike the, anything you're when, ever going to see. Um, I tell you where the, the dividing line comes. In that moment that Meryl Streep's character, Susan Orlean says, we're going to have to kill him. Right, that's the Rubicon where it all changes. Half the audience went on and they just didn't believe anything <laughs> after that. But they're missing it. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. I agree, I agree with you. Uh, it just becomes so absurd. Yeah, yeah, and um, what you know what? But what was that like working with Spike and Charlie? Oh, uh, they were great. They were great. They're they're very they were great, mm -hmm. and um, they they didn't argue because I. But that was I, it was their idea to make that pivot, and you just helped them craft that so that it would operate. No, they 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 wanted the they <laughs> they wanted the ending they first sent me, uh -huh. and I said no, that's out. But I sat down and I explained to them why. And they're reasonable people. And they sat there and, oh yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah. And, and they said, or you can do it without me. And if you, you know, if that, you- if That you becomes put, a page one rewrite. If you put me in the, if I do not approve the last act and you put me in that, then you will be faced with a lawsuit mm. that I will win. So they tried to do it without my character. Uh-huh. They sent me that draft without my character in it, and it really sucked. So then they came back and they said, "Yeah, well, you know, you, we have to have you in the, <laughs> in the movie." <laughs> and uh, I said, "Well, then my conditions stand. They need to find a third act that works." Mm -hmm. And so I sat down with them and I gave notes, and they never, they didn't argue. They, they were very not polite and listening, and um, I didn't tell them what to write. I said, this is why this doesn't work. And this doesn't work, that doesn't work, whatever. And uh, I see what you're trying to do, but you haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. And so anyway, but it all, at the end of the day, it all was, you know. It right, was, was and, and Brian Cox was your casting choice. Well, yeah, what happened was um, I said, um, I can't tell you who you must cast because who knows whether that actor's available. I said, um, but I want you to give me a list 
And um, what I needed to know was their casting philosophy. For all I knew, they saw for the McKee character, this could be the Dan Aykroyd, Danny mm -hmm. DeVito school of sure. casting, right? And so I said, send me a list. And it was the top 10 British actors of the day. So you were on a, the same page tonally. I had no, I, I didn't, I've never imagined myself as Michael Caine. Or, you know. <laughs> but, um, the, but you need that, that gravamen. Well, right? I, I saw what they were after. I saw what they were after. And um, Brian Cox's name was not on the list. And I said, okay, I see what you're after, okay? Uh, I would like you to audition Brian Cox. And they said, who's Brian Cox? And I said, he's the best yeah, British actor imagine. you don't know. Yeah. And so they went to London and they, Dorchester come in the suite and they, within two minutes they knew that you know, it was perfect. And why Brian Cox over Michael Caine? I'll tell you, actors. <laughs> Wonderful actors. Like, I mean, that on that list was Christopher Plummer. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was incredible. Um, when they're playing a, uh, an antagonist, there's always this subtext of love me, love me, love me. Yes, I'm a bad guy. Yes, I do terrible things, but my heart is in the right place. Little, a little uh, break the break the fourth wall wink. It's they don't have to do the, now. They're too good at that. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. But that's the, they wouldn't wink. They not, would I'm not be, saying they actually they would, would do be that, but they're conveying a certain that. yeah thing going on, a certain suffering, a certain whatever. There would be the love me thing. And as, as wonderful as those actors are, that for me, that would be fatal. I do not want my students to love me. I want them to respect me. I want them to learn from me, but I do not want to be loved. I don't want a bunch of people chasing me around, you know, becoming, uh, you know, my, my flock. I, I hate that. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I know, wife, you hate that you hate the word guru, right? That gets yeah, because you. it's an insult to them. It's not only an insult to me, you know. And in the ancient meaning of it, just meant teacher. But guru, in the modern terms, is somebody who um, gets um, uh, you know innocent people <clears throat> to fall in love with them. Yeah, it's pejorative. And becomes a yeah, uh, and he milks them for all the money mm -hmm. they can he can get. No, I don't want that. So yeah, I hate the word guru and. and um, I don't want followers. I don't want that. That's a sick relationship, you know, the the, the mentor student thing. And that if if it goes to the point where the student can't write without the mentor there, approving it or whatever the hell. I mean, how are you gonna grow up and be a writer? Writer is somebody who stands on their Right, own. and also the, the, the audience at your seminars is populated with people who've won Emmys and Oscars who yeah. return and return and return yeah. to remind themselves or to work through a particular problem mm -hmm. that they're having. Like these are highly accomplished yeah, people that are and, sitting and next and, to and, and so the brand word new guru people. Not only insults me as a person who's preying on people, but it insults them as fools to be preyed on. When in fact, the tremendous amount of success and talent sitting mm -hmm. in that room and um, 
most of my most of my students are over forty years old. These aren't kids; these are pros. Yeah. And um, so anyway, uh, so Brian Cox is going to drop. The, he's going to drop the hammer. Brian, well, you see it now in <laughs> you see it now in the succession. Yeah, it augured it augured Logan Roy in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of similarities yep. in yep. in that portrayal. Brian Cox is a wonderful actor who does not do that love me thing. And I knew Brian. Uh, I met him up. He was a student of mine and came to lecture up in uh, Glasgow. And I knew him from uh, his performances on the stage in the West End and uh, small movies, because I lived in England for mm -hmm. 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I knew Brian, because I'd seen him repeatedly uh, on stage or screen, and he was a student. And I, I watched him in a, in a play called um, uh, Skylight, David Hare play. And I really admired that he's not asking for sympathy. And I could imagine another actor playing that character. Woe is me, and mis I'm misunderstood. And I really—I mean, I could imagine it, mm. but he didn't. And so anyway, that's why Brian. Yeah, iconic. I mean, were you happy with how it came out? Oh, sure. You know, yeah. I, I took my son Paul to a screening, and uh, imagine what—you know—it's—it's it's, it's one thing for me to see myself portrayed, but imagine for a son to see his father portrayed. Mm -hmm. And so after uh, we went out to the uh, parking lot and I said, so what did you think? And Paul said, dad, he nailed you. There you go. Yeah. Did you ever uh, speak with Nicolas Cage about it? No, I've never met him. Yeah, no. it's interesting. No. Um, I love it. I think it's fantastic. and. You know, I'm a I'm a Charlie Kaufman fan and a Spike Jones fan, and mm -hmm. you know, that movie is a movie I probably revisit you know every year or so. Yeah. But when you think about master storytellers, and I would consider both of those guys, you know, among that that group, often you hear uh, about how they flex the rules, or they're the ones that are breaking the rules. So it's back to this idea that's you know a, see, a theme in adaptation, which see, is. The, you know, the structure is the bad guy and the geniuses are the ones who are operating outside of it. And, you know, I think it, I wanna hear your perspective on this because there's a lot of confusion, Wait, I think, around this. When you think about, you know, whether it's Tarantino or Charlie Kaufman, they are all operating within a structure that might elude the, the average viewer, but in truth, they're all adhering to, you know, time tested, tenets of good storytelling. Sure, but the word rule, rules, is another word like journey and other words that I- uh, Steve's taking off, see you, Steve. Yeah, Thank you for I, coming. I react it's again. Great to see you. There is no such thing in art. There are no rules. There's a form and the form has a purpose it, there's a painting, for example, almost virtually all paintings are rectangular. Why? Because if they're square or circular, it reduces everything to a symmetry. Symmetry has no tension. It's boring to the eye, right? 
And so there's a, there's a form. The rectangular frame is designed to put objects in a certain lines or colors or whatever you're working with in certain positions within that rectangle to create a tension and that, that holds the eye, moves the eye, right? It's not a rule. Nobody says you have to paint in a rectangular frame. It's a form. It's used for a purpose. Mm -hmm. It creates tension. And so people who think that storytelling has rules, and I really, you know, I react against that. There are no rules. There's a form. You know, that life goes out of balance at some point. And that it went out of balance makes us wonder how and why will these characters, if possible, restore the balance of life. And the story then is a struggle toward achieving that balance, positive or negative or something ironic in between. Mm -hmm. And so throwing life out of balance and the, uh, the conflicts and the effort to put it back into balance is not a rule. It's, it's a form. If life doesn't go out of balance, there's no story. It's yeah. a portrait, right? And so you can't say you have to throw the life out of balance is a rule. It's just, it's the nature of the art form. It's the rectangular right. frame. It's you know the movement from imbalance toward balance is the rectangular frame of a story told in time. And, and I try to get uh, writers to, to, to understand that. Nobody's telling you how to write. There are no rules. If you write something that is absolutely wonderful, no matter what, and intelligent, sensitive people read it, your career will be made because it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> okay, right, <laughs> right, and you have captured something that is um, that is compelling. How you do that? There's a form, and it for thousands of years, this is how people telling stories have shaped a story. And there's certain elements that are constant, mm -hmm. but you could do it like, um, uh, you know, like, like the, the, the film Betrayal. You could tell the story backwards if you want to. Mm -hmm. Betrayal t is told backwards, right? <clears throat> and you remember Betrayal? I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I saw that. Starts with a, the first scene is a couple years after their affair. Uh, and where they were married to each married to somebody else, or she was married, and she says he knows. Her husband has just learned about their affair. Her husband is this is, is that character's best friend. Mm. And then it works its way backwards. And then he goes backwards time. in time until this the film ends on boy meets girl, mm. and it works beautifully by. It's an exercise in dramatic irony. At every point, we know more than the characters know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how well, how will these characters re react? You know, what what made this? How will they react when they find out what we already know? Got it. So, so you can turn it on its head. In my the the book I wrote on um, character. I explored the whole spectrum of character, including radical characters from avant-garde, modernist, postmodernist plays, films, and, and, and novels. Uh, because that's choice. 
If you want to, you could write like Samuel Beckett and you, you know, create absolutely radical characters. And, and I'm going to do the same thing in, um, in, um, in the next book on story. I'm going to uh, show them the full spectrum, which includes absurdist. Right. On the subject of dialogue, there are certain very talented writers who are super idiosyncratic in the way they write. Like I'm thinking of Mamet, Sorkin, again with Tarantino, dialogue that is mm -hmm. incredibly poetic, but also dialogue that very much draws attention to itself, right? Like, you know, a Sorkin scene, like you you know who wrote that scene yeah, when you well, read when, it or when you hear yeah, it. But when you say you, you mean us people in the business. I suppose, the, but if you're the general audience, in any form of cinephile, the general audience, the general audience would not know that. There's it. like a trademark staccato, or you know, yeah. mammatisms, or yeah. the way that Tarantino writes. That fellow writers, you know, they are the authors of those works, yeah, because, very much so. But because you don't want to suggest, Rick, that when people go to see something by Tarantino or or uh, Sorkin, that the average person or the, the watches this is saying they go, Ah, Sorkin. Mm. Uh, Tarantino. They're not. They're they're into the story and you don't think so with Tarantino even. Yeah, even with Tarantino. That's interesting. But then I don't know. Movie movie fans are fans, and, and uh, uh, maybe there is some of that. But the reason I call attention to that is that I wouldn't want somebody that I'm teaching thinking that they should develop an eccentric style of dialogue that calls attention to itself. That's what I'm, I'm getting at. It's yeah. one thing if you're a master, but other than that, it feels like artifice and distraction that's being driven by ego and a kind of look at me thing as opposed to if serving it the story. Yeah, if it doesn't work, it certainly does. But then the other side of that coin is bad dialogue that calls attention to itself yeah. as bad dialogue, right? <laughs> well, there's no shortage dialogue of that. Dialogue sucks. Like, why are movies so bad, Robert? Come on. Why so have they bad gotten right now. so bad? Yeah, I mean, August was horrific. Um, the tectonic plates of industry and yeah, the, the, the I, way in which- I you know, have a, I don't know, I don't know how long cinema will last as an art form. I think that in some time in the future, and I don't know how distant, cinema will be like then, like ballet is today. It'll be um, minor, esoteric, artsy, I don't know, mm -hmm. but it won't last. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons. Film is so expensive that they they have to they you know they they're going to spend two hundred million dollars, it's got to make a billion mm -hmm. to be profitable. Literally, it's going to make five times the investment to turn a profit. And so you've got to think of you know how can I get a billion dollars worth of uh, people to watch this thing? So the commercial imperative is driven by uh, uh, the nature of things, and it's not like television or long form uh, streaming, um, you're asking people to get up out of their house, get in their car, drive somewhere, park, <laughs> mm -hmm. go to the movies at a certain time, whether it's convenient or not, um, 
And so it's it's got to be um, it's got to be a subject matter and a genre that would be. That's why I wrote this is book. action. That's why I you wrote know, the book Action. It is you know we're it's a it's a Star Wars Marvel Avatar universe that we're all living in yep. for better or worse. Yeah. Uh, and and the movies that are being made are movies at that massive scale that are either franchise spawning or franchise perpetuating. Uh, they're amusement park rides for for the most yeah, yeah. part. Yeah. Um, and but, because they cost so much, they have to be that successful, which means they have to appeal to the largest possible demographic and they have to work in China and all of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, look, some of these movies are, I don't mean to be completely, I love, I go see everything. I like seeing bad movies even if it's just an exercise in trying to figure out why they're bad or why they've made certain no, there's choices. Some, there's some wonderful but action films. That'd be I, great. I love going to the movies and I and I yeah. love a lot of these big movies, but it is interesting that action has be, you know, you just came out with this book, Action. Action is the domineering genre that monopolizes well, most of what we dominant. see in the- I don't know if it's domineering. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, um, but also action merges with crime. Mm-hmm. Well, comedy now also comedy, with all these big movies, right? War, and so um, a action and our uh, uh, mixes with a, a number of different genres. Um, it is uh, it isn't all superheroes, but or whatever. But I wrote that for people if they want to make movies, uh, if they can master the uh, form of action mix it with other genres or do it in a pure form, whether realistic or fantasy to whatever. Um, that's where it is today. And so I, I would hope that we would see some good action mm -hmm. because when it's good, it's great. And I love it. Yeah, me too. But um, television has sucked the audience away from you know, uh, going to the movies to see sensitive, character complex stories on on the big screen. Yeah, I want to see more movies like Michael Clayton. Those movies are not going to get made for the cinema. No. But while the aperture is 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 closing and constricting on what is ending up, uh, you know, at the the Cineplex on Friday night. Meanwhile, in television, it's expanded, you know, beyond in terms yes. of the opportunities. I mean, it's basically infinite and, a, and a, there is room for, I mean, yeah. you know, would Michael Clayton be made as a six hour Netflix limited series? Maybe, you know, but that's something I would watch too, yeah. right? But I wanna see, I like my drama serious. I don't like comedy and my sci-fi. I want my hard boiled <laughs> shit. I like, I like stuff about, I like espionage and CIA and yeah. MI6 and all, you know, it's like. Yeah, yeah. Those are, those are, yeah. those are long form shit. They're not making, aside from Mission Impossible, like, you know, you're not gonna see that in the movie theater anymore. No, but it isn't only the movies. I mean, there's, there's you know, novels. Of course. Uh, uh, sell more, not more, people think that people have stopped reading. It's just not true. More, more novels are sold, read and sold today, they're sold and read today than ever. Mm -hmm. People spend more time 
you know, uh, with their, uh, on their computer screen, reading novels yeah. than, uh, uh, than ever or listening to the audio. Two more things I wanna get into uh, with you and then I'll, I'll, I'll release you to your life. And, and one of those things is, you know, we've talked a lot about movies, the art and craft of writing, screenwriting, et cetera. Most people listening to this or watching this are not professional writers. Maybe they enjoy the movies, they read, et cetera. Um, so I guess what I wanna get at is like, why should they care about story? Why is story important? Why is thinking about story and, and taking seriously the art of storytelling something that uh, is applicable to the average person? Stories, I think as we discussed earlier, are equipment for living. So why do we go to the storyteller? Why do we read novels, go to the theater, film, television? It's to give us a deeper and deeper understanding of what is absurd and comic and, right? What is tragic and dark and painful, whatever, to see the full spectrum of life beyond anything we could possibly live. You get to enter into worlds you could never, ever know by the thousands. And so story expands your humanity and it also enriches your understanding of how and why people in the world do the things they do mm -hmm. to equip you to live more uh, successfully. The other is that the more you read, as you read, as you watch, when you go to the theater, try to um, challenge yourself as an audience or a reader to read or to experience, to be an audience to something a little higher, better in some fashion, more complex, more difficult than what you just read or watched last month. Mm. And uh, the wonderful thing about story is it's a museum. If you wish, you could go back and read the Odyssey or the Iliad. You could read the great plays written 2,500 years ago in Athens. And you can go back you know, to, to, the, to the greatest of writers, Mark Twain and Tolstoy and, you know, and uh, it's all there waiting for you. And every one of those great works is as valid today as it was when it was written. But you're going to have to learn to read in that language. If you're going to read Mark Twain, you're going to have to have an ear for that lingo. Mm -hmm. You know, Edgar Allan Poe, you have to have an ear for a whole different... Um, and as a result, what I do today is um, uh, just to save myself some time or to give myself some choices, I just pay attention to awards. The Pulitzer Prize, the Booker, Emmys, why not? Right, you mean just as a, a gatekeeper to quality? To see, to see who's, right? who, you know. And I look not for the winners, but for the nominees, you know, you can go online and see, you know, what were the 10 novels nominated for the long list for the Pulitzer, for the Booker Prize, or for the, you know, the Whitbread and others. 
Um, and it gives you some guidance. Otherwise, it's just mm -hmm. totally random. Right. So I do that. But just, you know, don't have to do that. But, but um, you want to, to challenge yourself to experience more and more fascinating, the, even if it's difficult, you know, and a, a really good film, a really good novel is worth seeing or reading more than once. Mm -hmm. Just like, it's the same thing. The second time you see a really fine film, it's a whole other movie. Sure. Same thing with a novel. The second time you read a really fine novel, you can't imagine, you can't- Well, it also depends on the phase of life you're in. We're, we're forced yeah. to- Read you know a certain set of novels you know throughout high school and college. We're at a certain phase of life. Maybe we can connect with it. Maybe we can't. But you know now, many years later, some of those themes that seemed irrelevant to you then become highly resonant. Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, the theater is literally a museum. What sustains the theater is we've got all these great playwrights from Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and Lillian Hellman and William Ingen on and on, on of the 20th century, Eugene O'Neill and the past, uh, Shakespeare first amongst them. And the theater keeps um, uh, going, keeps alive uh, by bringing them back, these great plays from the past. And you see, when you watch Ibsen or Strindberg today, you watch a play like like The Father and you see the ugliest marriage in the history of marriages mm -hmm. and written in 1890. And it's fearsome and it's and it's, it's shocking and uh, funny right. too, right? There's a <laughs> it's always it's always shocking to read something that's quite old and and it's, realize that it is as of the moment as anything. Bec and it because just humanity you, doesn't it teaches change, you right? the lesson <laughs> yeah. that everybody has to learn yeah. is that nothing changes. Right. Human beings are human beings are human beings and uh, they're not evolving. Society is, <laughs> but human beings are not evolving. Right, we got the same hardware. Yeah, that's um, right. It's fascinating to me. It, it, clearly, you're 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 super intelligent and insightful and 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 witty, and you have uh, a sort of brash confidence about you. And you know, we didn't even get into much of your background, but you know, you were an actor, you were a theater director, and a director. You've 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 worked in many capacities in the industry, outside the industry. You could have, to me, it feels like you could have become successful at any of these things that you chose. You could be running a studio, you could have become you know, a professional screenwriter, a director, a producer, et cetera. You make this decision to make your life about story. And I'm just interested in like, why did you make that decision? I found what I do best. Yes, I could have been, I was, I directed what over 60 plays and uh, they were very successful, mm -hmm. and, you know. Um, and so I could have directed it in the theater and then maybe moved on to film, television, whatever, uh, and spent my life doing it. And I'm, I'm sure I would have been fine. Here's what happened. I was a busy screenwriter in Hollywood. I sold every screenplay I optioned 
every screenplay I wrote, one of them I've optioned recently again for the fifth time. Mm. Okay. It was written when? In the 80s. Wow. And it's, it's uh, been re-optioned. Yeah, yeah, people wow. love it. People love it. And, uh, but they don't make it. Um, all the television that I wrote got made. And, and so I could see my work on screen and I recognized that, yeah, this is um, of quality and, um, and it's professional and it's, it's fine, uh, but it's not Ingmar Bergman, mm-hmm. who in my judgment is the greatest screenwriter mm. in the history of the movies. And that, but I discovered that by writing about, uh, lecturing and writing about writing, um, I had insights and I could make sense of things for people uh, in ways others couldn't. And that, that if I pursue that, I love doing it. And if I pursue it, I could be the Ingmar Bergman of writing about writing. Mm. And so um, I, I did what my instincts led me to, to do, which is to become the best at what I can do. And so that's, that's why I write about writing because I love doing it and it matters apparently. Um, so um, uh, so I'm, I, I remember that I made a choice. I, I can remember it very clearly. I could pursue um, screenwriting and I was making a living at a house in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. and, you know, swimming pool and all that. Um, and, you know, maybe someday, you know, who knows, uh, do something special. Um, but there was something about there was some, teaching and the interaction with the students yeah, that lit yeah, you I, up I in, a, in, you a new, know, in a new and different it, way. It's, it's really, um, it, it lifted my heart, in mm-hmm. the, you know, to, to, to see their faces while I'm lecturing and to see light bulbs going on as they get it. And they, I yeah. mean, they literally go, they gasp at times, right? Yeah. Go, well, it is a performance, right? It is theater. Yeah, that. You're writing, <laughs> you're performing, yeah. there's jokes, you know, there's an entertainment yeah, aspect to it. So, you know, it kind of pulls on all of those skill sets. Yeah. And they, and they, they understand, it helps them understand what they, it, I, I tell you, the, the old, the pros who come into the lectures, that are already, you know, successful. Uh-huh. Um, Not the least of which being people like Akiva Goldsman and like David Bowie took your class, yes, right? Yes, yeah, it was great. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> David, did you Boy- interact with him? Yeah, he, yeah, of course. He, um, he was the one of the best laughers uh-huh. that I've ever had. I mean, I, the, the the lectures are, as you were pointing out, you know, full of. Uh, Comedy or humor, humor, uh-huh. wit, and um, David Bowie just belly laughs. It was incredible. He, I mean, literally, his knees would come up to his chin. He'd laugh so hard. Did you see Moon Age Daydream yet? Hmm? Have you seen the documentary? No, Morgan's documentary. Oh, you, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Bowie because that movie is is a work of brilliance. You have is to it check really? it out. Yeah, it's incredible. It's truly incredible. It's a documentary 
I mean, it's Bowie's life, but it's, I think to, to coin like what Brett Morgan, the filmmaker said about it, he was trying to make a movie about David Bowie if David Bowie was making a movie about his life. Uh -huh. So it's a very surrealistic kind of sonic experience that is nonlinear in any way, but, but which really conveys the sensibility of this, this artist. Yeah, I highly yeah. recommend you check yeah. it out. But anyway, I interrupted you. No, 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 no. Um, uh, he, you know, he's the perfect example of what I was talking about. That that um, it's it's very moving for me to see someone get it, and you see it in their eyes in an in instant. It's not you know they they're they're there's this look. And uh, writers who have been, you know, they're, they're in their, uh, you know, thirties and forties, fifties, or whatever, um, uh, often come to me at, uh, on the break or after, and um, and they're elated, and they say, "I solved my script. Mm. I solved my novel at about eleven o'clock this morning mm. because of you know," <laughs> and. Uh, it's priceless. Um, and that's, yeah, I live for that. Yeah. Do you think about legacy at all as you're kind of concluding this tour? And well, there's books, the you know, this? there's books. Mm -hmm. And um, and then and all of my lectures are recorded. And um, now that I've, uh, this is the last, this is, I say, you know, the farewell tour. <clears throat> so I'm not gonna do live performances anymore. Um, and so now if people want, um, We've recorded everything, right? And uh, so all of that is um, uh, out there for them. And the books, whether well, you know, I, I've read all my books to, for the audio version, and they can read them or you know, uh, listen to them, whatever. Uh, but every writer who writes fiction or nonfiction would like to think that what they expressed, what they had to say, will live on after them for some period of time, at mm -hmm. least, you know, not forever. I mean, you know, can't all be Shakespeare, but it's a form of uh, immortality or at least a, a temporary immortality. Um, and so I don't, uh, no, I don't think about my legacy because I've already taken care of that. Mm -hmm. I wrote the books and yeah. those, that's my legacy. And, they will live on. Yeah, you know. Story is now 25 years old, the book. And it sells as much or more today than it did 25 years ago. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So um, if I had died right after I wrote Story, it would still be doing well 25 years later, mm -hmm. so I won't have any, um, I can't say I won't have any regrets because I made a lot of mistakes in life, but um, when I die, I will die with a sense of satisfaction. I did what I set out to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a good, beautiful place to end it. Um, thank you. It really was an honor to spend time with you. Oh, it was great fun. And, it was uh, great fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Best of luck with uh, the end of this tour. I know you got a big day tomorrow. Um, so I appreciate you taking time. Everybody should definitely pick up Action, The Art of Excitement 
for screen page and game. And uh, don't forget story. And five of course, other books. Talk about. Yeah, you've got dialogue, you've got character. <laughs> we didn't even get into uh, storynomics and the power of story and business and all of that. Uh, maybe you'll come back and talk to me some more about that. But crazy respect for everything uh, that that uh, you've done in the world. And I think it's a great service and it was just brilliant to thank meet you. you today. Thank you very so much. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.